Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we will bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. That's right. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron, you're up this week. I am. What have you brought to the table today? Well, um, I have brought a book called The Idea of Prison Abolition, uh, written by Tommy Shelby. Um, he, so to, to introduce, you might uh, recognize from the title that this is um, about prison abolition Get in out. some form or fashion. <laughs> uh, it's not just a clever name. Yep. Uh, he says in the introduction that the book is, quote, primarily for those still considering whether to insist that the practice of imprisonment can and should be improved or commit to fighting for abolition. Um, and this book grapples with, I think, multiple aspects of prison abolition um, or reform uh, through lenses of philosophy. Um, and so some of these aspects um, are, are the purpose or uses of incarceration. Right. Uh, he talks about racism in the, in the prison industrial complex, talks about private prisons and the ethics of profiting from prisons, mm-hmm. uh, and talks about sort of crime pretty broadly. Yes. Um, and there's a few other things in there, too. Um, Dr. Shelby starts off with an introduction called Reform or Abolition, which I just kind of quoted from. Um, but he lays out the thesis he has for prison abolition, which is that we don't need prison abolition, um, but a lot of structural reforms. Mm. Um, so some of which I think I agree with. I think we could maybe collectively agree with some of those things that he suggests throughout the book um, because they potentially do reduce the power or reach of the prison industrial complex. Sure. Um, so, I, you know, throughout the book, I, I did sense some alignment, but there's also lots of spaces where um, I didn't sense. I was like, oh, no, I, I just don't agree with this. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to be a good conversation. Um, I, I had a hard time reading some of it, um, just given the writing style. I think it was... Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's like I don't read a lot of philosophy, yes. so I don't know if it is uh, indicative of like sort of philo- philosophical works. Um, he also makes some references here that I don't have all the background for. Yes, um, he talks Great. about uh, liberal egalitarianism, mm-hmm. um, which I'm like I'm, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, you know beyond what those words mean. Right. <laughs> uh, so, and it sounds like you're drawing on a whole. whole um, you know, um, discipline yes. uh, around a, a philosopher. And so I, I don't have all the references there. Um, but anyway, ultimately a lot of the arguments just kind of didn't, didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, felt like they, they, they didn't quite get there. Um, and sometimes it just felt like a roundabout way for him to say that he supports reform efforts. Um, which was interesting. Um, but so I don't know, what about you? What were, what were some of your first thoughts on, on the book? Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I think, um, I struggled too a bit with his writing style and, Mm. um, sort of the, the, as you said, the roundabout way in which he sort of took us on a journey and tried to make a point. And, you know, he referenced a lot of really amazing scholars, um, and their work. And then just sort of at, at times it felt like, 
it took us on, in my opinion, some unnecessary journeys uh, to to make whatever point he was going to make. And so um, there were times where I struggled with this, um, you know, and, and and what's crazy is that I think we were both really excited to get yeah. this book and to mm-hmm. dive into it. And, and I, and I had this idea in my mind that it was going to, uh, in a way, continue to teach us about abolition and the work that needs to happen. But um, I think just given the direction that Tommy Shelby went in and, and where we are in our abolitionist journeys, right, in our learning yeah. work, you know, this book didn't quite live up to that for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you referenced the introductory chapter, um, and I think that point came pretty early for me, this idea that maybe this book wouldn't live up to our, our, our goals. Um, you know, he talked a little bit about sort of uh, his idea. He talked about the thesis, his purpose for writing this book. He said, I'm going to quote here. Uh, First, can the practice of imprisonment be justified despite existing structural injustices, for example, institutional racism and economic justice? Or should the use of prisons be discontinued wholly or in part until these structural injustices have been corrected? Second, could the practice of imprisonment ever be justified in a just social order, or would a fully just society obviate the need for prison and therefore make their use illegitimate and repugnant? These are the questions I will address, mm-hmm. right? And so I think in many ways that line of questioning sort of as the the central purpose of his book showed me that, you know, this book might be better suited in a way, in, in one sense, Um for someone who's just like starting on their journey of figuring out, mm-hmm. you know, where they lie on the abolition versus reform scale, um, you know, but, I, you know, I tried to keep an open mind. And then just a kind of a few pages later, um, I, I don't know, it, it <laughs> I, I sort of felt like uh, I might disagree with this man a lot in mm-hmm. this book um, because he said, and I'm going to quote again, he said, incarceration has legitimate and socially necessary uses, including as punishment. And so prisons are not inherently unjust. Yeah. So I think just sort of right out of the gate, just a few pages into the book, I, I it put me on the defensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I, I bet money that you felt the same way. How much? <laughs> I, How actually, much? actually all of the money I have, all the money, that all you the have? money I have. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can keep it. Um, uh, no, I double it, right? Doesn't that what that means? No, I didn't bet anything back. Oh. Yeah, you just keep your money. Um, right that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. That was one of the first uh, parts in the book where I felt like, oh, there's an assertion here, and then I felt like we moved on to something else. Yeah, and I, um, I was just, it, it was just confusing. And then later on in the book, he provide some evidence for that assertion yes um and and it sort of connects but in that moment when i read that because that was from the introduction yes i was like oh okay here's a point here's an argument and then it moved because it was the introduction so it was sort of establishing yes and so you know i understand that as as a as a a concept as a writing style but it didn't as i read it that's not how it felt and then we got to the point later on, I was like, oh, here's where he's talking about the thing that I, so. Yep. Um, and I think that quote is a good, that quote quotation you pulled is a good example of um, like the sort of just the way that he writes and follows a lot of threads kind of all at once. Yes. Um, that made it hard for me sometimes to read, um, to, follow to follow along, along yes, with, right? with the arguments. But, um, I'm you know, I'm glad you brought that quotation here because it, um, yeah, it was one of the things that confused me throughout. There's a lot of arguments, felt very roundabout to me, as I said earlier, um, that 
ultimately say prisons aren't inherently unjust. Right. Um, and he might be right that like inherently the idea of prisons aren't unjust, but he's, it feels like he's talking about prisons as, as if they exist in a vacuum outside of the context of structural racism and patriarchy and capitalism uh, and, you know, the other social structures that manipulate our, the world around us. Um, So the, you know, ultimately his argument is not that we should abolish the prison industrial complex, but that we should abolish the societal structures that make prison and the structures around it as impress as oppressive as it is. Right. Which, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm, I could be down yeah, with that. Sure. I'm on board with that. Um, and so, um, like, that made sense to me. But then he was, you know, I, I was also like, well, let's also rethink how we approach accountability for harm or wrongdoing or crime and what crime even means. Um, because when, you know, we create structures in which power can be abused, that power is often abused, yes. um, either by individuals or by the structure itself. Right. Well, yeah. and it's so fascinating to me to hear you talk about this and some of the, the ways in which you were thinking about it as he was, you know, unfolding this the, these arguments, right, and making these statements, right? Because, you know, I said, well, what about those things, right? And later yeah. on in the book, and I'm sure we'll get to this, he does address some of those things. Like, what does, uh, what do abolitionists have to say about accountability and wrongdoing? And so that mm-hmm. that's, that comes later. Uh, but right early on, I was like, but wait, <laughs> yeah. but, but wait. Um, and so in so many ways, I feel like I, I struggled mightily with a lot of the content in the book. And I think part of that is his, was his perspectives on abolition and abolitionist ideas and, and the work of, as I referenced earlier, some really incredible folks that we respect mm-hmm. dearly, Angela Davis being one of those folks, right? Mm-hmm. But just these incredible scholars and abolitionists and feminists uh, engaged in this work. And so, you know, when I, if I can move us to chapter two, um, yeah. that chapter was called The Uses and Abuses of Incarceration, Punishment, Dehumanization, and Slavery. And, you know, to give him some credit, I I think he does some decent work to define what prisons are, what some of the mechanics and mechanisms and structures and systems, uh, I think both inside and surrounding prisons are, which is yeah. certainly helpful context, right, and information for anyone t- to have. But, you know, it, for me, as he continues, it just, he sort of misses the mark when talking about some of the alternatives to prison, I think, right? Yeah. Like he talked about electronic monitoring mm-hmm. and home confinement and supervised probation. And and I, I just think, again, given what all we've read and consumed and talked about here at the table, right? Like yep. we know that those things are just different versions of the same harmful and not effective and not restorative uh, practices of imprisonment. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I, I, you know, I took issue there. He goes on later in that chapter, I think, to talk about how if prisons were properly staffed and organized and yeah. run effectively, then they could be places for I think he uses the word rehabilitation yep. of prisoners. Right. Um, and I think, in fact, he also talks about and comes back to this idea a bit in chapter four mm-hmm. um, when he dives into and you reference this, the idea of public prisons versus uh, private for-profit prisons. And I don't know, I think we're at a point where we just have way too much evidence to suggest and to know um, about the experience of what happens in prisons and regardless of their effective staffing and their effective organization, like that's just never going to be true, right? Yeah, I think that's been proven throughout our history in the U.S., the the way that prisons have evolved um, based on these reforms, 
to like sort of incremental improvements mm-hmm. that ultimately are still grounded in the the unjust context that they have existed in. Yes. Um, and and so I mean, one of the things that I think about here too is in one of this chapters, um, he said something about you know maybe uh, imprisonment would force um, deep personal reflection by people oh, who yes. um, have committed like a, a violent crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought maybe, but ha- like, how is that? And he talks a little bit about um, how that might happen. But I think one of the things that he talks about as as the core of what abolition um, is uh, that I think he quotes um, Angela Davis in this. Um, he talks about how we understand prisons to be would be fundamentally different in an abolitionist world. Right. And so I think I'm warping things here and I'm also top, talking off the top of my head. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. But I think the... Uh, if a prison existed in which a prisoner, somebody imprisoned for a crime, uh, through the process of being imprisoned, was committed to deep reflection, that would be fundamentally different than the prison system that we currently have. There it is. And so that is ultimately, potentially, an entirely different model that is outside the idea of what prisons currently look like today. Correct. Um, And so I I felt like... Th- that what was I don't know that was connected to sort of what you're talking about of what are these alternatives um, to prisons and you talked about electronic monitoring and and home confinement and supervised probation all that stuff that you know we have evidence for those are just different ways for people to be imprisoned outside of prison absolutely um, and so it's not really all that different and you know um, I know prison looks very different in places like Denmark. Mm. And so maybe that's the kind of thing that he's thinking about. But I also, I don't, I don't, I don't know a lot about the prison system in Denmark okay. at all. Um, but I think that if prison looked like what it looked like in Denmark, that would also be fundamentally different than what we understand prisons Absolutely. to be here. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's just, it felt very kind of nebulous what he was arguing for some of the times. And, um, yeah, so I appreciate you bringing all that yeah. um, here. One of the things that stood out to me, and I'm jumping ahead to chapter four a bit. Um, I referenced so, chapter four, so yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he specifically <laughs> talked about the, it was about the prison industrial complex and sort of profiting off prisons. Yes. Um, and this is one of the things that it took me right out of the book. It took me right out of the argument, um, right out of his arguments, um, because it doesn't feel grounded in the actual concerns of the of the issue. Yep. Um, he's talking about how people and corporations profit from imprisonment and trying to grapple with the argument that, quote, no one should gain financially from the suffering caused by imprisonment, which, like, is a good thing to grapple with. It's a good thing to understand, especially, like, in a book like this. And he then says, yet, even if prisons were constructed, maintained, and administered solely by public service employees, these employees' labor would be and should be compensated. And so they would gain financially from the suffering of inmates and their loved ones. Which on one hand, yes, yeah, sure. Right. Like, you, you're doing a job, you get paid a wage. That's that's sort of a, a contract 
social contract that we in our society understand. Absolutely. Uh, but also, that's not the core of the argument. We're not talking about people making money because they end up being a prison guard. Right. Like we're talking about private corporations manipulating the process by which contracts for those private prisons exist, which then drives some kind of arrest quota or like, you know, you states, some states have signed agreements where they have to keep the prison full X amount. Yes. So that the corporation continues to make money. Absolutely. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the person who works for the private prison company. Like, yeah, eventually that job shouldn't exist either. Right. But we're not talking about the $70,000 or whatever it is that that person makes and brings home as their gain finance. Like that's, it's within the argument, but it's like, it's on the, so it's on the, the margins yes. of like what actually Agreed. the argument about gaining financially from the suffering caused by imprisonment is. That's an example of one of the tangents that he went on that I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand yeah. why this was the place we needed to go because it's tangential to what we're actually talking about. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you were the one that tackled chapter four because I struggled. <laughs> <laughs> I struggled with that. And I think, but I think that's a good synopsis of what I experienced too. And just in terms of sort of the, it was the fringe arguments and the sort of the latching on to things that to me just aren't at the core of the issue right. at hand, right? When we're taking, when we're thinking about, um, as the book is called the idea of abolition. So, um, I, I appreciate that. Um, so I, yeah, I didn't write anything or, or think anything or prep anything about chapter four because I struggled with it. I yeah, will say was, that was uh, th there were some parts of chapter three um, that I did appreciate. So chapter three was a broken system, mm -hmm. racism and functional critique. Um, and in that chapter, as well as throughout the book, as I mentioned, he references Angela Davis's work a lot. Um, you know, he talks about her belief that racism is at the core of our society and our criminal punishment system and, of course, our prisons. Right. And so in one instance, he talks about how racist belief systems and racial prejudice in our society help to legitimize, right, the mass incarceration of black folks. Mm -hmm. And then in another instance, he uh, he references Angela Davis's uh, work where she talked about how the quote unquote black crime problem mm. is this ideological distortion that has deep roots in institutions of like slavery, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's a that's a big narrative that was shaped after like reconstru reconstruction collapse yes. to create like the black codes and stuff like yes. that. That that is how enslavement morphed into ultimately mass incarceration down the line. Absolutely right, yeah. and we've talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. And so. Um, Right. And so there are there were like these little sparks and places here and there in the chapter where I I thought <laughs> yeah. uh, that maybe he was going to embrace abolition as a result of of learning and working through and walking through Angela Davis's work. Right. Because, mm -hmm. you know, he, he talks about how given all of that, it, it might be the case that the criminal justice system needs to be abolished. Right. Or how there is no doubt that racially disparate imprisonment rates reinforce the construct of the idea of the black criminal yeah. in our society. So mm -hmm. I was, I was excited <laughs> reading that. Right. You know, but then he, he shifted and talked about how if abolitionists believe that there is this institutional racism embedded in the criminal punishment system, you know, then what about the institutional racism in other aspects of our society? Right. So he references like schools yeah. and healthcare and employment and, and our jobs. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that is the point, right? There is institutional racism in those places and functions of our society as well, right? So we've got so much work 
to do to sort through that. Right. And so mm-hmm. I don't know. I, it felt like, you know, as you talk about sort of the tangents and the journeys he took us on, right. It just felt like a missed opportunity there for him to focus yeah. on abolition within the context of the criminal punishment system and, and what abolition has the potential to do to like just combat the the many headed beast that is institutional racism, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It it felt like another one. It felt like a few points throughout this, and this this is probably over oversimplifying, um, but it felt like whataboutism to me. And a few points uh, is like, well, yeah, this is a problem, but what about uh, this? Yes. And it, so there Good were, point. and I don't think that's really. It's probably not a fair thing for like to say. Sure. Um, about his arguments. Um, because I think honest, like, I think he's, he's structured this thoughtfully. Like it's not, yes, you know, it's I not haphazard. Um, yes. hundred percent. But it, it felt like a, you know, in the same way that the, the piece I shared about the, you know, employees of a private prison right. company, like making money, like, you know, earning a wage being profiting off of the suffering is like, yes. And that's not really what the core is right like and it felt the same with with this too is like you didn't you didn't really get to like where the the meat of this argument is absolutely um, absolutely and so i i do wonder like maybe it might be different or maybe we would feel different i think we both only got to got the chance to read this through once right and sometimes we have time to sort of go back yeah. and reread some pieces because we, we we talk a little bit right and so and I, so maybe we'd feel a little different on yeah, a second read that's through fair. but yeah. yeah i i appreciate that point mm-hmm. yeah um so speaking about chapter five another piece that stood out to me is he's trying to establish the argument that prison does deter crime Yes. Um, by pointing to a few articles and some studies that have some evidence um, that shows that increased police presence deters crime. Right. Um, and then mm-hmm. he goes on to say later in this the same paragraph that, quote, but the more frightening dimension of arrest is the prospect of incarceration. If so, then fear of the police is, at least in part, fear of prison. And I felt like that was a stretch. He's trying to yes. ground this argument in fear of prison being a, a good thing that discourages people to commit crimes by connecting it to these studies about police presence and how police presence deters crime. Correct. And it it just felt like something that was not grounded in the realities of what people actually fear about the police. Mm-hmm. Like I, I understand like logically how you follow that frame, um, how you follow those sort of steps to get from point A to point, what, D here? Sure. Um, But I think one of the main things people fear about encounters with the police are the police themselves. Like we have years and years of evidence, anecdotal and, you know, empirical, like real statistical that show that, police trigger happy yes um or at least that's the impression that a lot of people have um and like i'm feeling anxious right now thinking about being in that situation like putting myself in that place where like what is what's the fear driving me is it fear of imprisonment or is it fear of this man with a gun right well i'm not sure what's gonna happen i'm not sure what he's gonna do yeah i'm not sure he's gonna how he's gonna react to something i do um and you know, I would likely, as a white man, be mm. fine in those encounters. Mm, there it is. What, like 90, 
95, 98, 99% of the time. Yeah. Um, but that's still where my fear is, is not of like prison in the, in that moment, in that moment, in that moment. Yeah. You know, I think fear of prison is in my psyche. Some, you know, it's, it's in there, but in that moment, it's not fear of prison. It's fear of that authority who has a gun. Right. And again, this idea of the anecdotal and empirical evidence of what has happened to folks mm-hmm. in yes. those scenarios. Yeah. Yep. Chapter five um, was difficult mm-hmm. for me. I should name, I want to name that it's called responding to crime, incarceration and its alternatives. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, 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 there were parts of it that I appreciated, right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the time that he spent sharing the work of, uh, some amazing abolitionists and scholars uh, and what they see as what we need, mm-hmm. um, you know, but yeah, I'm with you. The I was I was put off a bit by his thinking around policing and alternatives policing and, you know, in particular, his ideas around the dilemma that exists between relying on police as a deterrent to the existence of crime uh, as opposed to just removing police completely, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think what the latter means for both black folks <laughs> yeah. for black communities. Right. Like, um, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't actually pull the quote here. Right. But he, you know, he talked, I, I think he was talking about that alongside some of his thinking of throughout the book around abolition and abolitionist ideas and his analysis throughout the book of the criminal punishment system overall. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I, I struggled with sort of his, uh, the lack of, appreciating and acknowledging sort of the the black experience with police and policing right yeah. and the harm that police have done um, to black and brown communities in this country so that was a struggle for me yeah definitely i yeah that was it felt um not well explored yes um in terms of the the arguments being made absolutely um, all right. Well, let's let's shift here. Let's talk about application. All right. How does this apply to our everyday lives? Mm. I think for me, uh, thinking about this book sort of on on uh, a whole, say on a larger scale, um, it provides a, a pretty thorough exploration of prison abolition as an idea. Yes, um, absolutely. Or I think it could do that for some folks who maybe haven't done a lot of thinking about it yes um which i think is the point if we go back to the beginning um of it um of the book um so i appreciate some of the ways that he explores the arguments of of prison abolitionists and and grapples with the questions which i think those are good examples of critically reflective exercise yes absolutely Um, we talk about that so you know i like and appreciate that in the book um, and I think there are some ways he points out how arguments are constructed right. um, and the, the, you know, the ways that, that people put together what, what their argument really means um, that might help me pull things apart when I'm thinking about and considering other people's arguments in the future. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking is like this kind of really meta kind of yeah. approach to um, – I think what this book was was doing and what, what it does accomplish. Yeah, I was thinking something similarly as I was thinking about what application could be. Right. I think I think this book serves as like, like a good reminder that folks are situated all along the abolition versus reform spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it it it. It, it makes me ask myself this question, right? Like, what does it look like and what does it mean to 
continue to engage with and learn more about the criminal punishment system and prisons and its and their harms and 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 abolition, right? Mm-hmm. And then to engage with and have conversations with folks on any part of that spectrum, right? Yeah. Right. I think that's an important question to consider and a huge part of this work, right? As we continue to have these conversations here at the table and talk with folks outside of this table, right? Mm-hmm. So like how are we both learning and engaging in conversations and the work that's necessary to make this a more just society, recognizing that folks are all along that spectrum. Um, and yeah. so that's what this book kind of reminded me of and made me think about and just a and and in many (laughs) parts throughout the book in a real visceral way (laughs) yeah i think um i think that's a good point it it really there's so many different perspectives people have yes um you know this person is relatively speaking in our political context in the u.s I, i would consider progressive yeah um but in a different place on that side of the, the political spectrum than we both are. Yes. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a really good reminder that we have, there's so much richness in what that progressivism looks like. Yes. Um, and uh, richness and, and difference in, in approaches. Um, so, yeah, cool. Well, so let's talk about homework. How okay. do we continue to learn about this once we wrap up this conversation today in a couple yeah. minutes? Um, so one of the things that I'd love to do is learn more um, about and from the scholars of the black radical tradition that Dr. Shelby references at the beginning of the book. Yes. So this includes Claudia Jones, CLR James, uh, France Fanon, uh, Walter Rodney, and, and more. Um, so that's my homework is to learn a bit more from those people who helped establish this radical critique of structures and societies and white supremacy and colonialism and, and more. I love that. There were definitely, I'm going to steal that homework because a lot of what I did in the book and what I wrote in the margins and, and circled was just these folks' names. And there were yeah. a lot of folks who yeah. I just either hadn't heard of or I haven't read their work. And so you you named some of them. Others are George Jackson, Huey Newton, Asada Shakur. Like, like the list just goes on and on. Yeah. And he spends a lot of time referencing Angela Davis's work. And I think we've both read a lot of her stuff. But mm-hmm. um, there are folks... Uh, throughout the book that I'm like, I want to research them and figure out what their, maybe what their pinnacle work is um, and see what we can add to our, our reading list. So um, I did appreciate the work that he did to um, include all of that great thinking and those great minds in Mm -hmm. this book for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. Um, Well, we line up on homework. I like that. I like when that happens. How about that? Um, (laughs) All right, Damien, you're up next time. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? Absolutely. All right, so next week, I'm going to bring a documentary to the table for us. And, folks, I want to give Aaron full credit for this. So I'm bringing it to the table. (laughs) uh, But Aaron found it. Um, So thank you for allowing me to bring it to the table. Um, And there's a reason for that. I'll I'll share. Um, The documentary is called Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. Uh, and it was produced and released by an organization called the Media Education Foundation. Let me say that again. The Media Education Foundation. Um, and so right now, the folks over at Media Education Foundation have the film available on their website to watch for free. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to take advantage of that. So it's a bit timely. And that's why I uh, thank you again for allowing me to bring it to the table. Yep. Um, I think moving forward, you'll have to sort of buy the license or pay, stream, just pay yeah. to stream it. Um, so keep that in mind, folks. But um, essentially, uh, the documentary, uh, which I should say also features sports journalist Dave Zirin, uh, among other folks, um, is just a really incredible exploration of the idea of the role that things like politics and race and social justice issues and toxic masculinity and, mm-hmm. and so much more play and have played in the NFL in particular. Um, but I think there could be some um, expounding of that to other uh, professional sports in this country. Um, so I got to watch the trailer just earlier today and it was fascinating, right? And it, cause it features, um, there are clips of news outlets and media outlets and politicians and journalists and NFL players, and even Roger Goodell, the commissioner, all talking about the, the role of politics, um, mm-hmm. in professional football. Right. And so you think about, you know, as one example, the whole Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick situation. Yep. Right. And so yeah. what does it mean for players to take a stand or take a knee on the field? Right. And how folks reacted to that. Right. And how, mm-hmm. uh, Colin Kaepernick is still not playing to this day yeah. um, as a result of that. So yeah. um, the trailer was fascinating. It looks like it's going to be amazing. So I'm I'm really looking forward to, to watching this film and talking about it with you next week. Definitely. Yeah, it was something that um, popped up. You just up stumbled upon on, it, right? I, it popped up on Twitter. Look at that. Um, and so I follow uh, Dave Zirin uh, on Twitter, and so that's where I'm. I saw it. Um, but there's also quotes from like Robin DG Kelly. Yes. Who said like he says he's gonna show it in every class he teaches for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um just because it's so good. So I'm looking forward to to watching it and, and talking about it right here too. Yeah, I believe you said it's about 90 minutes or so, mm-hmm. something like that. So yeah. not not too long, but I think it's gonna be great. So I'm yeah. looking forward to it too. Definitely. Well, we wanna thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what? I'm going to ask you to do here. But in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review. Share our podcast with the people in your life, all of them. Follow us on social media. Sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. That's right. Thank you so much for listening, folks. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week. 